Hello, everyone, everywhere, and welcome to Movie Night here on WOMR and WFMR. I'm your host, Harry Kaysen, your Movie Knight, a defender of the realm of movies, as it were. I've been a writer, director, and actor, and I've spent my career in Hollywood. So now, here I am, happily residing in delightful Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It's September now, which means the flocks of tourists are departing, and we all hope they had a good time. I'd like to show you folks a good time, too, so stay tuned right here. This show, Movie Night, is a film review show, and I'll be reviewing four new films this program. They are They Cloned Tyrone, Asteroid City, Delicious, and the one film this month that's my favorite. For those of you who are return listeners, you know I like to keep that title secret until the end to hopefully keep you guessing and entertained. I'll also be interviewing an esteemed associate and dear friend from Hollywood. She's a fine actor, Belinda Montgomery. Hers is a very distinguished career in stage, screen, and television, and here's a brief rundown of just some of the titles that are part of her illustrious history. Um, The Virginian, Ironside, alias Smith & Jones, The FBI, Mannix, The Other Side of the Mountain 2, Barnaby Jones, Marcus Welby, The Man from Atlantis, Fantasy Island, Magnum P.I., Aaron's Way, Doogie Howser, Murder, She Wrote, Days of Our Lives, The Love Boat, Miami Vice, Tron Legacy, and besides all that, one of her very first roles as a teenager had her starring with The Muppets. (laughs) She's smart. She's funny. If someone turned on a camera in Hollywood in the last 50 years, she was probably in front of it, and with good reason. Stay tuned for our fun and funny conversation. Now, my opinions on the films I'm about to review are mine and mine alone, and I won't be doling out negative reviews on this program, knowing firsthand how challenging it can be to bring a film to life. I only want to praise the recent works I'm most fond of, and WOMR here in Provincetown, Massachusetts, is such a positive environment, I want to keep that good vibe going. first film is They Cloned Tyrone. It was written by Tony Rettenmayer and Jewel Taylor and was directed by Jewel Taylor. It stars John Boyega, Teona Paris, Jamie Foxx, Kiefer Sutherland, and David Allen Greer. This film is a comedy, not one of those slight giggling comedies, but an uproarious and outrageous romp. I couldn't stop laughing. Here's the crazy-ass plot. Ah, but first, just a tiny bit of history. In parts of the inner city, there's been a rumor for years, a conspiracy theory, if you will, that crack cocaine was actually developed by the CIA and turned loose in the neighborhoods to not only see what it would do to the population, but to help keep that population dazed and confused. Got it? Okay. That being said, the premise of this particular cinematic offering has to do with following three characters as they fall down the rabbit hole of yet another and even more disturbing conspiracy in the inner city. That conspiracy being that the government, who we all trust so much these days, is running a clandestine and sinister cloning experiment, creating duplicates of people, in this case only black people, for some to-be-discovered purpose. The three characters, played by John Boyega, Teona Paris, and Jamie Foxx, are the folks we follow. They also happen to be a drug dealer, a sex worker, and a pimp. And it's up to them to save the world. Sure, why not? 
Now, I won't be telling too much of the plot, as a lot of the fun is how it all spills forth. Suffice it to say, there's a lot going on, and you never know what's going to happen next. I love finding a film like this. Think Get Out as a laugh-out-loud comedy. But let's talk performances. Everyone is great in this nutty, Mobius strip of a movie. And while they're all having a whale of a time, that's especially so for Jamie Foxx as Slick Charles, the pimp. It's a treat to see this Oscar winner get his teeth into a wild comic role again. Not since his in-living color days has he seemed so buoyant. Now, are these actors playing stereotypes? Yes, and they know it, and they're running with it. Just why these stereotypes are as broad as they are becomes revealed as things develop. And I have to heap praise on Tony Rittenmayer and Jewel Taylor for coming up with the premise that taps into fears of Big Brother while laughing at itself and getting us to laugh along. This is Jewel Taylor's first film as a director. After having co-written Creed II, Mr. Taylor has the perfect touch with the little things like, oh, the performers, the pacing, the visuals, the story structure, pretty much every damn thing. So, is this movie for everyone? Well, next time you have your grandparents over for dinner, show it to them and find out. You might be pleasantly surprised. It's on Netflix, and you can bet your last money it's got stone gas honey. The next film is Asteroid City. It was written by Roman Coppola and Wes Anderson, and it was directed by Wes Anderson. It stars, oh gosh, do we have all day? Scarlett Johansson, Jason Schwartzman, Tom Hanks, Steve Carell, Jeffrey Wright, Brian Cranston, Edward Norton, Willem Dafoe, Hope Davis, Liev Schreiber, Rupert Friend, Maya Hawke, Jeff Goldblum, Matt Dillon, Margot Robbie, and many others. Truth be told now, I had to see this movie more than once to really appreciate it. There, I've said it. It seems very slight, very sunlit and airy, very whimsical to the point of being twee, definition, twee, excessive or affectedly quaint, pretty or sentimental. Well, guilty as charged. Here's the synopsis of the plot written by the filmmakers themselves. Quote, following a writer on his world-famous fictional play about a grieving father who travels with his tech-obsessed family to small rural asteroid city to compete in a junior stargazing event only to have his worldview disrupted forever, end quote. If you've ever seen a Wes Anderson film, and there may have been some of you who haven't, I can pretty much assure you they're all of a pattern. They are big, colorful, storybook-style films, the kind of big storybook you'd find looking up at you from the floor of an eight-year-old's bedroom, right next to the Indian teepee tent and the toy metal ray gun that shoots funny little sparks, circa 1955. As a matter of fact, and I mean this in the best possible way, there is something very eight-year-old about Wes Anderson himself and everything he touches. But he's the kind of eight-year-old that wins a genius grant, and always wears the same linen suits so he doesn't have to worry himself with changing his wardrobe, like Einstein. Mr. Anderson clearly is working hard on maintaining an innocence and wonder that we all had once upon a time. Not silly innocence, but profound and universal innocence. Think Jacques Tati, Picasso, Bert Lahr, and like that fine company, I don't think Mr. Anderson is capable of being anything other than what he is, though it might seem Lonely to him sometimes, as those previously mentioned artists were ultimately lonely. Well, Asteroid City is a delightful, 
film. Like I said, it's light and airy almost to a fault. Some reviewers has, have dismissed it in a what's-the-point attitude, but I think the medium is the message. The exquisite detail in every frame, the lemon-yellow and aquamarine template that dominates the proceedings. It's there if you look for it. And most importantly, the love each and every actor is reflecting back to the camera, meaning to Mr. Anderson, their dear director, and in turn to us, the audience. It's a wind-up filigree music box that plays half-forgotten, peppy, sentimental tunes, and with a dancing roadrunner as the floor show. What's the point? I think that's the point. You can catch this on Peacock. Our next selection is Delicious, and that's not a description, that's the title. Though delicious, it certainly is. It was written by Eric Bednard and Nicholas Boucrief, and it was directed by Eric Bednard. It stars Gregory Gadebois, Isabelle Carré, and Benjamin Laverne, and the cinematography is by Jean-Marie Dujou. This is a French film, obviously, and though it was made two years ago, it's just now available to American audiences. Not unusual for a foreign film. By the way, 95% of all American films get to France. Only 5% of all French films get to America. This film takes place in France in the late 18th century, just preceding the French Revolution. We follow a middle-aged chef, Pierre, played by Gregory Gadebois, as he toils in the kitchen of a nobleman, played by Benjamin Laverne. I'm not giving too much away to let you know that soon... Though an inventive and intuitive culinary artist, Pierre is sacked by his haughty boss for the slightest of provocations. For some reason in French films, nobles of that period are all portrayed as entitled jerks. Hmm, I guess that explains the guillotine, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Ooh, pun intended. Now, with nowhere else to go, Pierre returns to the small dilapidated village where he was born, but he's done with cooking, he's done with nobles, and he decides to be a blacksmith and turn his back on his talents. There's more to this, though, but I have to talk about the filmmaking first and to explain why I mentioned the name of the cinematographer, Monsieur Drujou, in this review. I rarely mention cinematographers. Usually, when a reviewer waxes poetic about images and the rich texture of the visual palette, that's like praising the costumes and sets in a stage production. In other words, the play sucks, but at least it looks good. Not so here. This is breathtaking takingly beautiful, and with a hidden advantage. I bring that up to praise not only the filmmakers, but also the technicians that made it possible. All those $200 million MCU movies, all those big-budget films that demand state-of-the-art cameras and such, happily, there's a trickle-down effect being passed on to those without such deep pockets. The lenses, the color saturation, the facile camera moves, the perfect framing. We've come to expect it while we're watching a costumed somebody pummel a baddie, but to see such God's eye view filmmaking take place in a quiet character study like this and a period piece like this, there's the hidden advantage. A rising tide lifts all boats. It's very encouraging, and it helps me not to despair of the species. There's a woman in the film, Cherche La Femme. She's played by Isabelle Carré, and she basically pries Pierre out of his funk, challenging him to write himself and be a chef again. Perhaps they'll even create the world's first restaurant. But I did say the French Revolution was about to begin. Therein lies the story, of course. 
This being a French film, there's much more of a concern with character than point A to point B storytelling. It unfolds at its own pace, but it's always a glory to behold. Monsieur Gadebois is fascinating as the gruff and stubborn Pierre, all the more so when he's being met toe-to-toe by Mademoiselle Carré. Is it a romance? Of sort. Is it adult and multi-layered? Absolutely. Is it delicious? We. Oui. Available on Prime Video. This is Movie Night, and I am Harry Kaysen, here on WOMR 92.1 and WFMR 91.3, and streaming live at www.womr.org. And now it's time for my honored guest. As I mentioned at the top of the program, she's the fine actor Belinda Montgomery. Her credits in Hollywood are miles long. It would take me the length of this program to list them all. She started her ascendancy as a young contract player at Universal Studios, one of the last to be in that stable before it went the way of all things, one of the stable mates being a taciturn tall actor, Clint Eastwood. She's worked at every studio, appeared on every network, is still sought after, and in her spare time, she paints. Quite well, I might add. She's my dear friend. She's gorgeous and gregarious. And please excuse the prolific usage of the word darling between us. It is Hollywood after all. Here she is, Ms. Belinda Montgomery. So I'm here with my dear friend, Belinda Montgomery, uh, who uh, has a, uh, a past in Hollywood, shall we say, uh, but a, a very a glorious <laughs> past. And uh, I'd like to talk to you about that a little, Belinda. How are you today? I am just fine. And don't forget, at one time it was Belinda P. Montgomery, then it was Belinda J. Montgomery when I first came down here. Wow, I can't keep up. I just can't keep I know. Up. Is, that, is that for tax purposes? Is that what you're running from the law? Was that something like that? <laughs> I know it sounds like it. No, apparently, numerically, it was the right thing to do to put a J in my name at the time. This is, we're talking 69, 1970. Those things meant something. Sure. sure. Back, in, back in the day. Well, in my intro, which you haven't heard yet, I talked about many of the projects, many of the shows that you were involved in. And it's just, it's like a who's who. Uh, but what I'd like to start with, quite frankly, is the Muppets. Oh, oh, that was so much fun. Jim Henson. Yeah. And he, and, was, he was in the middle of all of that at those days. Talk, talk about a little, a little bit about Jim Henson, if you don't mind. Oh, Joe Henson, he was just uh, this wonderful, quiet, humorous guy. Um, I, I, it's kind of a blur. I was on stage dressed like hey, Cinderella, uh, like Cinderella going to the ball. Uh, so I suppose that was a, a wonderful way to get started in show business. Uh, well, I had had a series before that. Oh, okay. I think uh, it was called uh, <clears throat> Boomer. Barney Boomer, which was a, a teen show, sure. and uh, and so I had done some of that, and then I had done uh, TV before that and radio in the late fifties with my father. Right, I was going to ask you about Manitoba. that because I know you come from a showbiz family. Let's talk about the the uh, the legacy <laughs> of, of all of that. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. My dad was an actor in Canada in the Midwest. I don't know how he made a living, but he did. He had a radio show called The Jacksons, and it was a farm broadcast that went across Canada every day. It sure. was a series, and he played an Irishman named Tim Murphy, and uh, 
and Tim was this old curmudgeon Irishman. Well, they would go from town to town and do it live, as they used to do for radio back yeah, in the sure. 40s and 50s. And uh, they'd set up the audience, and they'd introduce the cast, and then they'd say, uh, as Tim Murphy, Cecil Montgomery, and he'd come out, and th they would clap for everybody except my dad, and they'd sit there staring at him because where is the old man? And then finally, when they understood, when he opened his mouth and said something, then they'd go, oh, yeah, that's Tim Oh, Murphy. he's the old man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> acting, acting. Acting, yeah. So that's I had funny. a great introduction, you know, as a kid. I just thought anything sure. he did was great. And well, then was, they needed a, he, it was It was cool. And they needed a, a kid um, to play this one part, a little boy. And I had a very uh, gruff voice as, as a little girl. I was kind of husky. And um, and so they said, would Belinda like to do it? Because the kid just didn't arrive, and it was a live oh. broadcast. And oh. Dad said, I was with him at the time. He said, do you want to do this? I said, sure. So thus that whole thing began. Wow, that's great. Now, I, I know that you were a, a contract player at Universal back in the day with Monique James someone who I read for just towards the end of that whole program going away. Talk to me about uh, being a contract player in, in the early days in Universal. I was so uh, spoiled and and privileged to be there as as one of the, you know, the last uh, several or 10 contract players at the time. It was 1969. And I arrived there and got an apartment. My My agent helped me get an apartment around the corner because I didn't know how to drive. <laughs> we great lived in place to move, great place to move to when you don't know how to drive i know right and uh, so everybody said well it'll be easier for you because you can just live around the corner i said oh okay so i would walk to work in the morning oh my god <laughs> <laughs> like a factory worker it was just really exactly well it was universal the factory we all did every show Sure. And I kept my teeth there at Universal. It was it was just fabulous. Monique James was my fairy godmother as she sure. used to sign herself. She was very good to me. Uh, she had a difficult time with other people, apparently, from what mm. I heard from other actors. But uh, she really treated me like I was her daughter. I was very, boy, was I happy about that. When they brought me down from Canada for a look-see in a meeting at the big black tower. Yeah. We, remember that? Oh yeah. You know, that was that, it was the tallest building in in uh, in Universal City or in right. the valley at that time. Yeah, in the I valley, think yeah. Was, what was it, 16 stories or I something? I think it was, yeah. And I think Lou Wasserman's uh, um, office was he, at the very top. It was like the whole floor. Is, that's right. He was on the very, very top. and. Um, so they traipsed me around all the offices, all the different producers, etc. I was kind of numb. When I got back to Monique after meeting everybody, I got into her office and I sat down. She said, darling, how was it? And I said, ah, ah, <clears throat> something caught in my throat. I couldn't speak, Harry. I couldn't speak. I was 18. I had flown in from Toronto. Um, and so she said, she called her secretary and said, Linda, Linda, get her a glass of water and an aspirin immediately. Really? I'm glad <laughs> yeah. that's all you needed. That's, that's a, you got I needed easy. a drink. Got I needed easy, a yeah. drink, but I wasn't old enough. Yeah, a couple of quaaludes. Gee whiz. 
So now my my feeling about being a contract player, even though I never was, my, I might feel a little constricted. Like I've got, I have to do what they tell me to do. Was that an ever ever a consideration for you? No, because anything she handed me, if it was a script that I didn't want to do, and there were a couple of them that were in 1970, they loved to have all these parts with with nude women and and young things walking around, and I I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I said, I don't mind being, uh, you know, being a dramatic actress, a comedic, but really, I'm not a stripper. I don't want to do that. Yeah, and right. she really, she really respected that. I was very, I was very lucky um, that, that she said that. So, no, I, I had a, I had a great time. I could choose what I wanted to do. So let's talk about Doogie Howser. <laughs> Uh, what are your, what are your, what was a good day on Doogie Howser? What was a bad day on Doogie Howser? Well, I think you were there on a couple of the Doogie Howser days. I was. We, we had fun. Um, you know, uh, Stephen Bochco was like the dream producer of all time. When he, when I came aboard, he went, Belinda, all I can tell you is when we did the pilot, which I thought was kind of silly because, you know, this kid doctor who's just turning 16. Uh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, he, he said, Belinda, now that you're in this, we're going to go for at least uh, probably five years. We went four. Wow. But he said, you're, we're, we're, don't worry about anything. It's going to be a lot of fun. And he was the best producer to work for. What makes a producer a good producer? Well, he endorsed anything you wanted to do. He would take meetings with you now and then just to see if everything was okay. Wow. And, you know, I, I was the mom. I wasn't the main, I wasn't the kid. So uh, he was very generous in his time and his comments and um, his humor. And uh, at the time I had a family member uh, in season two or season three, uh, who was gravely ill with cancer. Mm. And I spent a lot of nights at Cedars, uh, Cedars Sinai Hospital here in LA. And um, that was a trip too, because I'd be going down the hallway and, and this is when Doogie was on and very popular. And I'd get double takes from, from nurses going, well, what? <laughs> right, where, aren't you Doogie it, Houser's mom? Yeah, yeah. Where, where's, where's Doogie? Is, is Doogie operating in room 17? Yeah. Exactly. I said, no, Doogie isn't here. And um, and Stephen heard what was going on and uh, sent me a note and then sent, called me up and said, listen, if there's anything you need, you need to fly anywhere around the world for, for any kind of um, uh, help from any hospital anywhere, I'm going to fly you there. Mm. I'm going to fly both of you there so he can get some some help. And I thought, wow, there are too many people. I think. Boy, no kidding. <laughs> Producer or not, that's a nice human being. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Did, did you have uh, acting lessons of any kind? Some people don't. No, I, my dad just said, you know, be real, be in the moment. If, if, uh, if I believe it when you're doing it, then you're probably doing it right. He was that's right. Great. That's great. You know, I mean, that was my, that was my dad. He said, don't get too full of yourself. And that was typically Irish for him to say that, my dad being from Dublin. Being very Irish, was, yes. You know, it was sort of like, uh, yeah, don't take yourself too seriously. 
Uh, and the Irish, you know, the Irish have a saying, when you walk a child in a carriage and you're going down the street and somebody comes up and looks at your new baby and says, oh, what a beautiful child. You have to say, ah, this ugly thing. I mean, right. you can't it's, do that. That's true. It's bad luck to be, to have good news. You know, it's, it's you keep, you've got, don't, don't tempt God. Exactly right. So, you know, we, do, we try not to tempt God too much in our household. Right. Let's talk about your let's talk about your mom a little bit. She was surrounded by all these actors, your brother, your sister, your father. Oh my gosh, what was that like for her? Which was like a three-ring circus. Oh, it was. It, my mom was the best. You know, you knew my mother. Sure. Uh, my little Irish mom, she had such a great sense of humor and she wrote poetry. And I think she's published somewhere. Um and so you know, she she held everything down. She took my brother when he was little guy, when he was eight or nine, she took him around to the sets and and uh, she was the the mom, the stage mom. But she was everybody's mom on the set. You know, she was just great. I remember I, I did something that she was not pleased with and I hadn't seen her for a couple of weeks. And then I saw her again and she was very stern with me. And then she burst out laughing and said, oh, I can't stay mad at you. She was just so adorable. Yeah, she was. She couldn't stay mad at us either when we were little kids. I'm really, I'm really irritated with you, Belinda. And then she'd, you know, she'd say, I, how dare you, whatever it was. And my sister and I would take off running around the house and she'd say, when I catch you. And I'd say, what? When I catch you. And then she'd burst out laughing. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a disciplinarian she wasn't, but she was, she was the best. Uh, let's talk about the, uh, after the, what happened to you after the contract? What, what are you just suddenly... The, the program ends or, or did you, what happened? What, what was the next step? Well, the next step was that I, I was free and I could go off on my own. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, maybe that's the end of that. You know, I had no idea what to expect. I had agent people running around and uh, we went on from there and shot uh, TV movies and uh, pilots. We shot a couple of pilots, I think for series. And I don't know, I just kept doing my thing, just kept working, you know? Sure. Uh, yeah, it was, um, it was kind of a, a wonderful time. Uh, I was thinking about all those different shows. In fact, I pulled them up because some of them I don't remember. And I thought, what if he asked me about these shows? I got to uh, take Manix, a look. Yeah. Oh, Mannix. Was I on Mannix? Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> the first show I ever did was a Marcus Welby. Okay. And I think I think it was the second Marcus Welby that they had shot and um, in the whole series. It was really wonderful. It was taxing. I had to play a girl from uh, Oklahoma and um, I had to have an accent. Sure. And, and so I didn't know what that accent sounded like. And we had, of course, a voice coach, an acting coach on at Universal. So they brought me around to him and I said, what does this accent sound like? He told me I did it. And then I thought, okay, learned the stuff and went on the stage. There were two other actors on, on stage. Um, and they came up to me afterwards and they said, okay, what, what part of uh, Oklahoma wow. are you from? Wow. And I went, I said, well, actually, I'm, I'm from the Midwest in Canada. And they, their jaws dropped. They went, what? <laughs> so it was, it was just easy for me as it happened to do that kind of thing. And it was fun. Do you have a favorite role? Well, there was a series on NBC for two minutes called Aaron's Way mm -hmm. with Merlin Olson and Jessica sure. Walker and uh, 
we had a wonderful time. We had a wonderful cast and writers. Um, and um, it was about an Amish family who get transported from Pennsylvania uh, to San Francisco area because of circumstances. And how do they fit in when they're an Amish family? I was the mom in it, as I was in a lot of shows. And we all enjoyed each other tremendously. It was only one season because Brandon Tartikoff at NBC, you know, mm -hmm. who was president at the time, yeah. decided that family shows are on the way out. So oh. he got rid of them. Yeah, he said, okay. we got to ax this. So that was a shame. Let's talk a little bit about Miami Vice. Oh, that was just wonderful. I was shooting... Um, I was shooting Days of Our Lives. They asked me to come in and do a stint on there. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of in between shows and I thought, well, okay, this might be interesting. I've never worked harder in my life. Oh my God, the soaps are hard work. Boy, oh boy. Well, you you've done, so you did early. that. I've done Days of Our Lives. Charlie Shaughnessy did Days of Our Lives. Kevin Simon's Days of Our Lives. Yeah, there's just a, a continue, continuing thread here. You're running from one set literally to the next yeah. where the cameras, three cameras are set up, right? And, and there you oh go. Gosh. Yeah. And if you, don't, if you don't screw up too much, they just keep moving. And I always kept an eye on the guys behind the scenes, you know, the, the the set guys and the lighting guys and the carpenters, and they're all just sitting back there drinking coffee and talking about their boats and their rental properties. Exactly. Boys, these are the guys with the good job. I know. And they'd be on yeah. the show for 30 years. Oh, my God. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I could talk to you all day, obviously, darling, but we're running out of time and we need to. Have oh, that was great, here. Harry. My uh, old friend. Thank you. Thank you, my darling. Uh, uh, long may you wave. I'm glad you had so much fun. I'm sure there were downsides to being an actress, as there is a downside to every uh, profession. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you, you always made it look easy. You always made it look fun. And uh, you're just a, a lively, fun little number, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love you, Harry. Love you too, darling. Thank you so very much. Have a great, that great was, day. It was good fun. All right, sweetie. Bye. Bye-bye. The last film is my favorite of the bunch this month. Its title is Emily. It was written and directed by Frances O'Connor. It stars Emma Mackey, Fionn Whitehead, Oliver Jackson Cohen, Alexandra Dowling, Gemma Jones, and Adrian Dunbar. This is a period piece telling of the life of Emily Bronte, the author of Wuthering Heights, the sister of the author Charlotte Bronte. The movie is set in the English countryside of the 1840s, and we follow the Bronte family, the siblings all being in their early 20s, and as yet to make their mark on the world. Well, to say this is a true story would be like saying Wuthering Heights is a true story. Though there are many aspects of this movie, Emily, that are based on fact. Ms. O'Connor, the director and writer, you may remember her as the actor who portrayed the mother in Steven Spielberg's AI some years back. She's a first-time director. I happen to know what it's like to be a first-time director working with your own script, and I was dazzled by Ms. O'Connor's accomplishment. Her hand is sure, her images are stunning, the performances she draws forth from all the cast are at times absolutely wondrous, and the story, though greatly expanded into a fictional universe, is compelling and even magical. And the actors. Emma Mackey, as the title character, is flawless. Actors, in my experience, can fall into several categories. They can be fine technicians, exhibiting the required traits and emotions for a scene.
They can be mysterious and quirky, so you can't take your eyes off of them. They can be commanding. They can be heartbreaking. And the finest ones, in my estimation, are all of these things. They reveal their very souls to us, the ultimate in sharing the human experience. Ms. Mackey, as Emily Bronte, is just such an artist. On a wildly different tangent, Miss Mackey is also a side character in the movie Barbie as physicist Barbie. <laughs> so it's obvious she has a serious sense of fun, too. What a combination in such a young actor with so much promise. And Fionn Whitehead, as Emily's brother Branwell, is right there with Miss Mackey, matching her beat by beat, keeping up with her, revealing his soul, too. As you may have discerned, I dislike giving away too much plot-wise, but I have to say there is one scene about 20 minutes into this movie where all the siblings are together that absolutely shocked and thrilled me. It's haunting, it's beautiful, it practically lifted me out of my chair with its power. And that's all I'll say about it. That's all I need to say. See it for yourself. Congratulations to Ms. O'Connor and Ms. Mackey. It should go down as a career milestone for both of them. Well, that's our show. Thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank my guest this episode, my dear friend Belinda Montgomery. Stay tuned to a future episode when I play the second half of our fun conversation. I also want to thank, as always, the very talented Mr. Dunn for his fine work as my sound engineer. And a thanks to my dear wife, Lynn, for viewing this month's selections with me. Most importantly, I thank the fine people at WOMR and WFMR for allowing me to be a part of their magical mystery tour. I'm proud to be on board, and you, dear listener, I'm hoping you feel the same. This is Harry Kaysen, the Movie Knight, saying goodbye and good movies.